For me in the back. Hello in the back. Can you hear me in the back? Can't hear me in the back. A little higher. Hello in the back. No in the back. Move forward. <laughs> what happened to our group up here? <laughs> well, I'll start with the secret teachings so anybody not here will miss them. <laughs> So I was so uh, deeply moved by just sitting together tonight that I rummaged through my little folder of readings and I found my favorite little passage on Sangha, on community, on the support that we offer each other, how, how coming together is such a, a great benefit. And it, it is, it's a little series of teachings called Lessons from Geese. Fact one, each geese, as each goose flaps its wings, it creates an uplift for the, ver for the birds that follow. By flying in a V formation, the whole flock adds 72% greater flying range than if each bird flew alone. So people who share a common direction, sense of community, can get where they're going faster and easier because they're traveling on the thrust of one another. So clearly it's, there's some kind of sacred power and support of practicing together. When a goose falls out of formation, it suddenly feels the drag and resistance of flying alone. It quickly moves back into formation to take advantage of the lifting power of the bird immediately in front of it. So if we have as much sense as a goose, to st we stay in formation with those headed in the direction that we want to go. We're willing to accept their help and give our help to others. And that, that part is very important, giving help to others. When the lead goose tires, it rotates back into the formation and another goose flies to the point position. It pays to take turns doing the hard tasks and sharing leadership. That means supporting Sangha, volunteering, etc. As many people are filling in, taking turns, taking the Dharma seat for the next four weeks. So it's all part of Sangha. The geese flying in formation honk to encourage those up front to keep up their speed. That's my job. <laughs> we need to make sure our honking is encouraging. In groups where there is encouragement, the production is much greater. The power of encouragement, the stand by one's heart and core values and encourage the heart and core of others is the quality of honking we seek. Last but not least, when a goose gets sick, wounded, shot down, two geese drop out of the formation and follow it down to help and protect it. They stay with it until it dies or is able to fly again. Then they launch out with another formation to catch up with the flock. 
So if we had as much sense as geese, we will stand by each other in difficult times as well as when we are strong. So if you do have housing that you know of, just, you know, Madison has kind of fallen out of, you know, it's falling on hard housing times. And it happens, and I think it's really part of our mission. It's mission dharma. <laughs> mission to support each other in whatever way we can. So keep that in mind. It's not just about having a good time. So tonight I, was, I mostly wanted to speak, I don't know why exactly, but it will come to me, that all day long I, the phrase of a talk that I've given many flavors of over the years kept floating through my mind, so I thought I would just go with it tonight. And it was a, a talk and actually a few retreats that I led entitled Calming the Restless Mind. Any of you interested in that topic of calming the restless mind? <laughs> So I was noodling a little bit, thinking about this afternoon, or this evening, about calming the restless mind, and I realized there were so many directions that I could go. I could see the, the essential teachings of the Buddha Dharma, the Four Noble Truths, the Noble Eightfold Path, as the natural uh, understanding and means of calming the restless mind. And we could go through the truths and go through the practices, but I thought that uh, what I th- think is most practical and most expresses the means of coming into, um, into harmony with ourselves and the world around us and to really ease our, ease our burdens, rest our weary mind is encapsulated in the sutra that um, the Buddha gave that became the... the um, the, uh, the engine of the uh, spreading of the practice of mindfulness in all its forms, and that is the sutra called the, the Mahasatipatthana Sutra, which is the sutra on the four foundations of mindfulness. And I'm not going to give a very specific talk about the four foundations of mindfulness, but they will be implicit or embedded in what I'm about to say. So I was thinking about the four main reasons that we feel so restless and agitated, just uh, feeling dis-ease, this sense of disharmony. And the first one, and embedded in the first problem, is the solution. The first problem that we have is we tend to be, as we go through our lives, we tend to be disembodied. We tend to be living a few feet from our body. We tend to be, as some people describe, they use the metaphor of living in our head. Of course, nobody actually lives in their head. That's just a metaphor. It's an idea. As though, but we live in our thoughts, and people will point to their head, even though their thoughts are not in their head. We tend to, our energy tends to move up in a way. And we tend to become disembodied and become masters at the, at the virtual reality, the reality of, of living in, in the imaginary world of our thoughts, but become very disconnected from the, from the living reality of being embodied, being fully present. And in order to be fully present, you have to be, uh, you have to have a, a, a felt experience 
uh, you have to have open senses. And in order to have open senses, you have to be, have your attention in the same location as your senses. So in order for me to be fully present seeing, I have to be resting in, with attention in the same location as the sight, the, what we call the sense base, the base of seeing, which is the eyes. And I have to be aware of the consciousness that arises with seeing. So in order to do that, I have to have my mind in the same location as my body. I can't be, I can't be in living uh, absent-mindedly. I can't be um, disconnected from my body. The, a bigger problem with being disembodied is our body knows it and it cries out. It feels tense. It feels agitated. It feels very chronically um, anxious. And because we love ourselves, we want to find a solution for our restlessness and our agitation, our, rest, our, our anxiety and our fear, which in some ways are all somewhat dependent on being disembodied. Because if you do find your way back to your body, slowly, slowly, even in the moment where you're connecting with the felt experience of being restless or agitated. Even in that first moment of coming back, there is in that little moment of mindful attention brought to the body, there is in that moment not the cessation of restlessness, not the ending of agitation, but there's the cessation of suffering about it. There's the cessation of adding more and more, piling on, compounding the, the suffering of our body through continuing uh, to jettison our attention into what I call the imagined future or the imagined past or all kinds of strategies that tend to increase our disembodiment rather than decrease it. That's our usual habit is to, is to go out in search go out of ourselves. And we do it because we love ourselves, but, we, but it's a, a methodology that tends to just increase our sense of being disembodied. And, and we live in a, I, I think you could say, we live in a culture that values um, being able to think things through, being able to analyze, to be able to interpret be able to strategize to, to uh, mostly uh, as our methodology for finding relief, we rely heavily on the, um, on the door of perception of what we call mind, the thinking mind. Now unless that's balanced, it's, the thinking mind is a marvelous tool, but it works 100, 200% better when it is balanced by being uh, embodied, by settling, settling our, our energy, our, our vibratory, whatever you want to call it. It's hard to find language for it, but letting the, the, um, the buzzing, the agitation, the confusion, letting the tension, letting it slowly, slowly drop all the way down to, from our head, our face, 
our shoulders, our arms, our torso, our genital area, our legs, all the way down to the tips of our toes, so that we can actually feel that we're here. That we sense, we sense even our skin as we're here. We sense our flesh. We sense our muscles. We sense our bones, all the way down to the the bones of the fingers and bones of the toes. Notice what happens in even just a few moments of settling your attention. Regardless of all the unfinished business that you have in your life, everything that isn't complete, everything that you want that has not been fulfilled, everything that you regret, everything that you're, everything that is um, unsatisfactory. Watch what happens when you settle everything into your body, even for a moment. You'll notice that even in the midst of of your of the what may seem in your life story or life situation, all the torments, all the things that are difficult and hard to bear, you'll see that there is a peace available and that there's an openness available and there's a way of being comfortable even as things are not figured out. And this is a, an open secret. It's easily overlooked that we have a a tremendous source of ease and freedom that is none other than what the Buddha described as mindfulness directed to the body. That's the first foundation of mindfulness. So it's both our problem that we're disembodied and the solution is never let your mind leave your body. And I'll actually guarantee guarantee that you will be clear you will be your thinking will be clear your heart will be more responsive your your actions and decisions will be more intelligent because you're all you have all your ducks in a row and you're connecting you're actually getting the feedback of life right where it's touching you as the poet Donald Babcock says because you've eased yourself into the boundless right where it touches you. That you have, that you won't find the transcendent reality anywhere but in this holy body, this miraculous form, this miraculous instrument of, of perceptions and inner sense. Amazing. Just to be able to see and hear and smell and taste. And those simple sense doors, those senses that are unexplainable, that, um, that are so sensitive, they're just dulled, they're abandoned, they're ignored for the world of our imagination, which is, which is very juicy and pleasurable at times, but often a source of so much more tension. And it's fine to think, as I was saying before, as long as you're embodied. Thinking is a wonderful thing. And it will even be more pleasurable if you are embodied as you think. So meditation practice is not to stop your thinking. 
but it's to create the ground of attention, the ground in your body, the ground of presence, to be able to to have the openness, the sense of presence, to be able to see the, the thoughts like clouds passing through an empty sky, to be able to discern the thoughts that are wholesome and helpful, and the thoughts that are complete gibberish, just the nonsense that plays through our mind. And especially to be able to see for ourselves from this sense of embodied presence where you are so you and enough and whole and full on present evidence to see the difference between that living experience of yourself and the virtual version that plays through your mind that is so little and distorted and confused and is always comparing and getting smaller all the time because of the little measurements. I'm okay, I'm not okay. Maybe I'll be okay. Everybody else is more okay. Do you ever ever have those thoughts? Any of you ever have the comparing mind floating through your mind? Now, when when we are disembodied and unaware, we actually take those thoughts, those comparisons, as the reality of who we are. And as I, everybody who sat with me before knows that I often say that those thoughts, those comparing thoughts, describe somebody who doesn't even exist. It's the virtual you. Now, having said that, I always like to remind us that those comparisons are views of ourselves. They are, they are born of our life circumstances. They're born of our... our um, our differences, our cultural differences, our religious differences, our gender differences, our, our sexual orientation differences, a lot of our differences are just part of the, our conditioning. And they're, they're part of our personal story. But our personal story, as rich as it is and as wonderful as it is to share, it can never, if we live in our personal story, it, we overlook... Uh, the reality of who we are. We, the deeper reality, the more immediate reality. And so we, we can include and enjoy our, our comparisons, our judgments, and all the stories that we tell about ourselves. But our stories, are, they, they are um, a source of tremendous suffering if we are not first and foremost uh, grounded in uh, immediate reality in what we call now and your experience of now and that experience of now is very is is very um, it's not easy to put into words but you can feel it and it doesn't it it doesn't really um, your your life story doesn't really so much it can't touch this immediate this sense of now it can't it cannot, the story can't hold you. Because your nowness is connected to everything. As I said before, just where life touches you. Where is the, when we are really fully here, where is the, where is the line between us? All those constant separations that we're making in our thoughts, they disappear when we settle into our body. When we come to that single point called here, we come to that single point that connects us with everything. It's called ekagata in the 
Pali language. One-pointedness. So if you keep putting your mind in your body, not only will you be able to function better, sit in the middle of all of the dramas of your life, the internal and the external, you not only sit in the middle of it, but you can actually be well. You can be happy. Even if things aren't all worked out. Nothing's ever all worked out. That is the definition of birth. The leading cause of not everything working out. <laughs> a few things feed our <laughs> a few things feed our disembodiment that we easily take for granted as the way you're supposed to live. And I'm, of course, I, I'm preaching to the choir here, so meditators know better. But, but we all have this conditioning floating through our mind. And unless you, unless you are mirrored by people who are reminding you that there's another way to be, it's very easy to be caught up in the dominant paradigm that, that creates value, that, that describes our value as being uh, enhanced and... Um, Elevated by being uh, what this particular editorialist, Amy Krauss Rosenthal, says, um, that which defines us, which makes us special, is the fact that we are what? Busy! Busy. Here's what she says. How have you been? Busy. How is work? Busy. How is your week? Good, busy. You name the question, busy is the answer. Yes, yes, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not, busy is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. Certainly there are more interesting, more original, more accurate ways to answer the question, how are you? I'm hungry for a burrito. <laughs> I know the people who came from the Essential Dharma Retreat are not hungry for burritos. I'm envious of my best friend. I'm frustrated by everything that's broken in my home. I'm itchy, yet busy stands alone as the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are. I'm busy is the short way of saying, implying, my time is filled, my phone does not stop ringing, and you, therefore, should think well of me. Have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? This week is crazy. I've got about ten caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? I have a hunch that there's a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase of busyness. Look at us. We're pros now at hailing taxis, making copies, carpooling, performing surgery with a to-go cup in hand. We're skittering about like hyperactive gerbils, high not just on caffeine, but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, productivity. Ah, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. As kids, our stock answer to almost every question, what did you do at school today? What's new was nothing. In our country's history, there have been exactly seven kids who responded with a statement other than nothing. Then somewhere on the way to adulthood, we each took a 180 degree turn. We cashed in our nothing for busy. 
I'm starting to think that like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. Maybe we should try reintroducing it into our grown-up vernacular. Nothing, I say it a few times, and I can feel myself becoming more quiet, decaffeinated. Zenish, nothing. Now I'm practicing openness, emptiness, a white blanket, a couple of ducks gliding on a still pond. Nothing, nothing, nothing. How did we get so far away from it? So this nothing does not mean inactivity. It means uh, not, um, not letting, for a moment, not letting our mind move. Nothing. Just experiencing yourself simply. It's really synonymous with being embodied and simply present. Knowing what you're doing when you're doing it. So when you walk, just walk. Nothing that you would ordinarily associate with uh, being important. But it is of deep importance for our sense of well-being and our sensitivity to each other. To be open and empty. To come out of the tangle of our fear, our anxiety, thinking, and for moments live in silence. And then, as Rumi puts it, flow down and down in ever-widening rings of being. Coming out of the narrow, narrow little world of our, our preoccupations, our comparisons, our judgments, our, our plans. It's fine to enjoy your comparisons and plans, but you've got to be open enough to notice that you're doing it. But the whole of our practice is moving from that little narrow world that puny world of your thinking to this vast panorama of our immediate experience. As that poem from Rumi says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of that tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Keep flowing down to a wider sense of being. So I notice that when my mind is very narrow and tight, caught in my discursive thinking, caught in my worries, my, my mind is focused on what's next, so much focused on what's next, that I lose contact with here. My body says, hey, you're not happy. It tells me if I'm sensitive to it, you're jumping ahead of yourself. How much can you actually handle in this moment? You can only handle what's here. You can't handle what's next. And you can't handle what's happened before. The whole of our life happens here. In an unfolding now. How far do I have to travel to get to now? It may take me eight hours to drive to L.A. How far do I have to go to get to myself? Get to the place of peace, harmony. I don't have to lift out of this instant. Yet... when we're disembodied we think that it's going to take eight hours it's going to take eight lifetime it's going to take the rest of my life to get happy to figure it out and then we spend our life postponing in a a state of suspended well-being so practice in that one moment that you put your mind in your body everything is here for you everything's granted 
if you make it a habit. At first it'll be, you'll feel the aches and pains of everything, all the residue of this uh, self-abandoning that's been done. Innocently, it's not your fault. Every one of us has left ourselves because we loved ourselves, but nobody told us that uh, you don't have to leave yourself. The way out is in. My teacher in India, Punjaji, used to say, anybody that tells you to go, go somewhere else is a teacher, or is a preacher. A teacher will tell you to come back to yourself, that you don't have to leave here to be free right now. Anybody else is a preacher. So, hopefully you get the message here. <laughs> I don't know if I'm a preacher or a teacher, but, but I want you to stay here. And I don't want you to have to, I want you to have, have uh, calm, which is the, really your natural state. I think it just makes, if you have a basis of calm, a basis of, of harmony of your mind and body, then you can deal with all the things that are, are confusing and un, unfinished. But if I lose touch with this body, it's... Um, it's hell. It's literally hell. The comparing, caught in the comparing mind, that's hell. That's a living hell of thinking that you are measurable. That you're either above, below, or equal to somebody else. When no, nobody's ever been able to find that on present evidence. Like where do we find our comparisons? Right here. Unless we, we just create this whole imaginary reality. In present reality, we are awake. We are we're intelligent. We're, uh, there's so many possibilities. We're free. In the mind of in that narrow mind of the 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 so-called expert about who we are, we're just we're encapsulated in some dead end. It's usually some little story where I'm not enough insufficient, not getting it. Everybody else seems to have it more together. None of you ever have that, though. But all that ends, literally ends, in a moment of putting your mind in your body. Just for a moment. And you do it enough, and you starts to be more default. More of the default. So once you're here, a little bit more embodied, then you'll see in the little constituent parts, you'll see the little dependent, the causes and conditions that lead to leaving, leaving, checking out. Because that checking out, that disembodiment, happens because of the way we react to sense experience in the present moment. Because this, remember, everything happens here. There is no other place. Everything that has ever happened in your life has happened in the present. Everything. And so all the tendencies of mind to go out in search happened, the springboard was something that arose in the present moment. This points to the second foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of what's called a vedana, or feeling. Every single moment of sight, sound, smells, tastes, sensations, thoughts, all the different doors of perception, every moment, depending on our conditioning, each of us, we're all conditioned, 
and our conditioning is beginningless, again, it's not your fault. Your conditioning was set in motion long before you knew what was going on. But anyway, we arrive where how life has come to be in this moment is sights arise, sounds arise, smells arise, tastes, sensations, thoughts. This is the all. This is the totality of our life is six experiences that are rolling on moment by moment. Does anybody have more going on in their life than that? On present evidence? That kind of makes things simple, doesn't it? That's really what's happening. The rest, the way it's dramatized, is mostly our story about our life. It's mostly about our situation. But in reality, there's these six experiences. So it turns out that these six experiences that happen to everyone all the time, nobody's immune, it's one of those equalizers. We all have, at least as long as we have a door of perception, all of our doors open, some people can't see, some people can't hear, but for the most part, most people have these doors of perception available to have contact with, with sense experience. The inner and the outer come together with... with uh, both inner, our, the sense doors, and then the sense experiences. We call sense doors are just basically our senses. So it turns out that every moment of sense experience comes accompanied with a feeling of pleasant, of unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Every single moment. So when you hear these words right now, they may for you have an association with a pleasant feeling. They produce a little present valence. Or for you, they may be unpleasant to hear what I'm saying. It may be, you may be tired, you may be, have heard enough already, or you may be excited, you want to hear more, and it's, it gladdens your heart. So that's the, that's the little reactions that we have, little feeling tones. They're all dependent on conditions. But when a pleasant feeling tone arises and it goes unnoticed, it's immediately followed by liking. And liking is usually followed by wanting. And wanting is followed by, by seeking. And it may not seem like much, but that little sequence of moving from pleasant to liking to wanting to craving that produces a lot of pressure, produces this kind of tension. And that tension then releases in the form of sometimes planning, sometimes strategizing. It, it releases in the form of our mind going into, uh, into a, a, a pursuit, a state of becoming. The Buddha called it bhava. Our mind starts moving creating the notion that I have come from the past, I'm passing through the present, on my way to the future. Now remember, nothing's happened. We've just, there's just six experiences happening. But in our virtual reality, we are on a mission. We're going somewhere. We've come from the past. We're, we're just kind of barely here, on our way, looking for happiness, which is going to be found when I can satisfy, continue, have more of what I want to happen. So that's just a very tiny little description of, of what happens in reaction to pleasant. Same happens to unpleasant. Unpleasant, disliking, oh, we're already at 9 o'clock, I can't believe it. Five more minutes. 
unpleasant, disliking, hating, get me out of here, <laughs> which you may be experiencing right now. It's afternoon. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Notice the unpleasant. Now, if we, if we catch the unpleasant, if we catch a moment of unpleasant, marvelous. Oh, unpleasant. Unpleasant arises, passes away. If we don't catch the unpleasant, it it moves along that chain and it hardens into, into strong aversion. And then that creates pressure. And pretty soon we're, we're figuring out, when can I get out of here? I wish he'd stop. You know, he, he, was, he was okay the last time. This time he's just going on and on. <laughs> and really nothing happened except your mind went on a storm. Went into a storm. There were just six experiences happening. And with the neutral experiences, things that are neither pleasant or unpleasant, we just space out. We just go, we start looking for entertainment in our, most often in our thinking mind or in our, in our planning mind or something like that. So it's, it's, if we stay here, stay embodied, stay in touch with the pleasantness and the unpleasant, learn to accommodate our feelings, our reactions, Learn to notice our thoughts about things. Notice the states of mind that come in reaction to things. That's the third foundation of mindfulness. And then, if we're present for not just the difficult mind states, we start to be present for the wholesome mind states, the the mind states of spaciousness, of ease, of calm, of joy, of happiness, of delight, of of, um, aliveness of wellness. And then the present, the only place where life is, becomes so compelling that the desire to be somewhere else just starts to fall away. And then we sit, we, we find our home right in the middle of it all. And then as we find our home in the middle of it all, we see with a steady embodied awareness, we see that whatever arises passes away. Everything coming and going, and we experience joy, the joy of letting go, the joy of being in harmony with the flow of life instead of constantly being in reaction, trying to push the river to make things happen or resist pain, resist this, resist that. Trying to, trying to get somewhere is like trying to live a life with the brakes on. And that doesn't work. We have to learn to let go. So I just share the ever-valuable words of Ajahn Chah, where he reminds us again and again to do everything with a heart and a mind that lets go. If we let go a little into this embodied present, we'll have a little peace. And if we let go a lot, we'll have a lot of peace. And if we let go completely, we'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles and fight with the world will come to an end. Doesn't mean the world will come to the end. Won't mean you'll come to an end. But your fight with it, your struggles, your suffering about it. May all beings learn embodied presence. And may our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings.
thank you so much for your patience and your presence and dealing with all the kind of Vedana, all the kind of feeling tones that may have come up. And love being with you, and I will really miss this group for the next uh, four Tuesdays, but I know you're in incredibly good hands. Uh, we've got some real masterful teachers coming to support you and, and come to support them as well. Thank you.